Aw oh man, if that song doesn't give you a shot of adrenaline, I don't know what will. The Eye of the Tiger, Survivor and Adamant 1982. And I'm playing this song because I'll tell you, after I finished this interview that I'm about to share with you today, I felt pumped up. I was I was ready to face the challenge of my rival and look right into the eye of the tiger and it's because of the energy, enthusiasm and passion of this guest today. I'm going to introduce you to Gordon Cooper. And really the best way I could describe this uh, for those of you that have been listening to the podcast from the beginning, you remember all the way back in episode 2, it was the first guest we ever had on the show. Mike Henry uh, talked about his experiences and Marine, and we talked about kind of his thoughts on our country. Well, today we have the South African version of Mike Henry. Uh, Gordon Cooper was born and raised in South Africa in one of the most dangerous times in that country's history and really in world history in a lot of ways. He was a special ops Marine in the African Bush Wars in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, and really to compare it, the African Bush Wars wars for South Africa would be compared to America's Vietnam War. Very brutal, very intense, guerrilla fighting. He was on the front lines and saw it all. And then for those of you that are familiar with the history of South Africa, in 1994 was the fall of apartheid and Nelson Mandela being elected and a huge change of power there in that country. And it was a tumultuous time that he was right in the middle of in South Africa. Uh, after he came out of the Marines, he wanted to help people. He saw the value in the Marines of being self-empowered, of learning how to fight. And unfortunately, learning how to fight was a necessity at that time in South Africa. Believe it or not, in the early 90s in South Africa, and, and really up through that whole period, uh, the whole 90s, excuse me, it was more likely to be murdered lying asleep in in your bed than it was to die in a car accident. With all of the violence that was going on in the country at the time, Gordon basically stepped up and started a business based on self-defense and self-empowerment. He did that for 10 to 15 years in South Africa, and then just recently, a few years ago, brought his whole family, immigrated with his whole family from South Africa to the United States. He lives here now and runs this same self-empowerment business in the United States. If you want to look it up, it is called Ronin Empowerment. That is R-O-N-I-N. They do corporate training. They do private events, all based around his book, Winning the Mental Game, Making Things Happen. You can tell I'm fired up. That song got us going early on. So I really, I think this is a treat. I think you'll enjoy not only this conversation and his perspective on life, but sometimes it's nice to look at, at an outsider per se and see their perspective on America. And it's interesting when he talks about what we have here in this nation, why his family chose to come here, and some advice he gives to us as Americans that I think is really, really crucial for us to laugh on to. Now, this episode, I'm going to play the entire uh, the, the entirety of this uh, interview here, but then in the following episode, uh, after this conversation with Gordon, I was prompted to do a little more study into South Africa during that period of time, in the time that apartheid fell with the election of Nelson Mandela. And there are a lot of parallels behind what they went through in the 90s to some of what America is facing now with the call for social justice. And so in the next episode, it'll be a solo episode where I'm going to talk about some of the history of Nelson Mandela and South Africa in general. And I think it'll be really interesting interesting and listening to this episode first will definitely get you in the mindset of wanting to know a little bit more about South Africa. I'll deliver that in the next episode. This is Gordon Cooper. This is Millennial in the Middle. Thanks for listening. You said you graduated in 88. 
uh, high school. So how, how old yep. are you? So I'm now 51. Okay, you're 51. Yep. So you're a Gen Xer. Yes, sir. All right. And you were born in South Africa. Yes. Your parents are South African, yes, lived there their whole lives. Whole life, yep. Are they like Dutch Afrikaans or what's so, their background? So my parents, um, one grandparent was English and then three were Dutch Afrikaans. Okay. So we're kind of more, we're 75% at least Dutch Afrikaans. Okay. And when did your like roots go to South Africa? I thought it was interesting when you said like everyone kind of came from Europe yes. and they either went west to the US or and then south. once you got to the US, they moved westward expansion happened there. Yes. But if you look at Africa, everyone moved south and guess what? You When you get to South Africa, you can't go any more south, yes. right? Like well, you're actually, there. Actually, the order was, I mean, they went south by, by, by a ship. So they went to the Cape, known as the Cape of Storms. Okay. Cape of Good Hope. So they went down by ship, landed in Cape Town, or what became Cape Town, and then moved up north into the interior. How many generations? So, um, I mean, I mean, we're talking, um, I mean, uh, from the 1600s, this, this change began to happen. But really, it was more the 1800s when the real, real settlement began, you know. Okay. So, um, and my, my uh, you know, our family <clears throat> arrived in, in the Cape in about 1820, somewhere around there, okay. with a bunch of the settlers that arrived. Okay, and then uh, from there settled in the Cape, and then and then uh, and then of course our, uh, my forefathers were among those that moved into the interior and went north. Okay, so are your parents still around? They're still around. They both live here in Utah now. Okay, cool. Yes. Did they come to Utah at this area of the U.S. at the same time as yeah, you? Yeah, so, so, so I had a brother who came um, when uh, about 25 years back, and then my parents came about five, six years ago. Okay. In fact, no, maybe a bit more, seven, eight years ago. And then we came about four years ago. And you're married and have how many kids? Uh, six. Six kids. Yeah. Um, so then to catch everyone up, you now live in the U.S. You just told me that you finally got your immigration done. Yes. Walk me through that process. Uh, Crazy we'll talk process. more about South Africa in a minute why you Crazy, came but... so, so, so I, I literally had to sell everything I own back home uh, just to pay for I mean you know if we look at our, our currency compared to your currency so we're paying immigration lawyers in dollars you know um, and, and, then, and then our flights and and just I mean our, the, the, the cost I think our immigration must have cost about $30,000 oh, which back home is more than half a million in, 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 in terms of the, the cash sure. you know in, in, in what we pay um, and so yeah so it was a very expensive process very laborious process we thought initially it would be a couple of months we'd have our green card um, but it, it, it didn't work like that, you know. So, um, you know, we got here and it, it was really a couple of years. Um, and I think, and, and, and credit to the government for the uh, stri- stringency, you know, for, for how strict they are on, on immigration. You can't you can't just put anybody anywhere, you know. I mean, um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I found the process efficient. It took long and it, it was thorough. And you really have to be qualified in order to be able to do this. I found that um, my background and what I've been through... Um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, it just, it just, um, it, it, it was quite a story. They really look into your life to make sure they want you here. And obviously they want someone who can add value, not someone that'll become a burden. Sure. Uh, you have how many kids? Six. You have six kids. So you, your now. wife and six kids yep. now come from South Africa to the United States. What was that transition like for your family? This is only Harder four years than ago. expected. I mean, I mean, I, I'd visited and done business here f- over the years. I'd done training here. You know, you, you know, I mean, if you want the experts, come to America, you know. And so, so we, I trained with people here and that's when I developed a love for your country and, and then, uh, brought the family over and immediately it was it was like I took a mountain off my shoulders I mean we arrived uh, we stayed in my brother's basement initially um, we took a picture of each of us with two bags we had nothing else no worldly possessions mm. I didn't own stuff I didn't have to worry about fixing a house or a car that could break or a <laughs> I had nothing yeah. we just I just had my family around me and it was one of the most liberating experiences ever I realized then the value of simplifying and so there we stood and and and, and we just started out and what was great was for me to go to my daughter's bed and see my little kid was what then about three two three and watch her sleep in peace and know that I don't have to worry about what's going to happen to her tonight it was the most 
I can't tell you emotionally how amazing it was to know that she was sleeping in peace, that my wife was safe, my kids were okay, there were no bars in our windows, there were no fences in front of the yard, we could get up and go walk uh, in the street and not have to carry something, you know. Yeah. It was just amazing. But uh, the, the, the hard part is the cultural difference. Now, you know, us Afrikaans people um, are a very, uh, I don't know, we're, we're, we're a quiet people, we're a very friendly people, you know. And I found um, the American culture to be a very business-oriented culture, you know. It's, it's uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, for example, if we send an email, we'll say, hey, we hope you're well, hope you had a great day, da-da-da, the email, and then at the end we'll say, um, you know, uh, have a great weekend, warm regards, you guys will start your email with, hey, did you get that done, question mark. You know, so it's 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 very business orientated and very to the point. And there's no um, uh, mincing words. There's no t- uh, trying to be diplomatic and whatever. You know, whereas do you I think it's because we're different. in such a hurry? I think you're in such a hurry, and I think you know I've been watching a lot of westerns lately, and I think uh, it's 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 your nature. It's the old culture of get to the point, get the job done. You know, and and quite frankly, I like it. Um, what I don't like is is uh, uh, in some ways I think you guys have lost some of your humanity. You know, and and there's a there's a feeling for each other that which we, which I love back home. I mean, we'll get together, make a big fire, and cook meat. We don't have these fancy cookers you guys have, so we kind of just <laughs> put a raw on the fire, cooking the meat, and we'll have to, we'll, you know we'll watch our rugby and our sports and talk, and you know we're we're a, we're a, we're a very social or sociable people, you know. Whereas I find yeah, people get down to business a lot quicker, and it's and we it's, kind of stay with our own family, our own friends, and aren't right. aren't looking to build to that often. Very much so. And having said that, I mean we arrive and we just every time you open the door someone's got cookies for you or a couch for you or something I have never found a more giving people you know and so yeah the, 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 the tough part for us was just a different culture I mean you go move to New Zealand now people are different you know and so you've it takes about three years to adapt to the culture um, having said that we're thrilled for the decision we've made and you know our, we, we, we always say our blood is wild African but our hearts are free American you know mm. the Statue of Liberty that's us you know her invitation is something we took up and we paid the price for it we've done it legal done it right and uh, it's just a blessing to be in this country and I consider my heart American through and through wow well I am glad we have you (laughs) I can say on behalf of my country welcome and it's a victory to have you and your family here six other Coopers running around who I'm sure if they're taught the right way they are some of them we're looking for homes for so (laughs) but others will keep (laughs) so let's talk about this so tell me a little about your childhood and upbringing in South Africa it was a wonderful childhood we grew up amazing Um, the country wasn't uh, this was during the apartheid era um, everybody lived in far more peace and harmony than the media have made out you know um, people were safer happier we had a wonderful upbringing I mean you could ride your bike in the street you could walk to school you so did you s- like so apartheid I know like they had these neighborhoods and like you just explained it, even to work you had to have a passport and vice versa like yes. white to go into black area black to go into white area did you like see black people were you around yes, that? or was it just time. like you around whites no all the time no I mean I mean we, we, we interacted all the time and we and, and there was a lot of I mean I if I have to think I once had an issue where a guy tried to stab me in a supermarket he got into a fight and I mean I did karate and I, I thought I could help the two guys not kill each other and I stepped into a knife fight which was perhaps a stupid thing to do and the one guy turned on me you know but other than that I never ever had conflict with a black guy you know um, and and uh, whites and the blacks had a, there was an understanding amongst each other I mean we, we got on fine um, you know I lived, I lived in southwest Africa where I grew up as a little kid and there it was a little more dangerous I mean there was there was kind of um, and, and, and again it's it, it's 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 you know I had a friend who put it best he says this is not about black people and white people it's about good people and bad people there are terrible people among the white people there are good people among them there are bad people among the black people good people among them and this this international problem we find is good and bad people same back in my country you know mm-hmm. and um, so most times we you know we, we grew up in peace we we had a good time with each other and you know you just had to know where not to go yeah you, know, you had your dangerous areas and you stayed away from them and then you were fine sure so to look at that like obviously with institutionalized apartheid which happened in 1948 like one of the big sides of that is that black only white people could vote 
Yes. Right? Which, that feels wrong. Yes. Of course, right? Like, you are sure. in a civil society try- claiming to be a democracy that votes for people, but only people with white skin can vote. Did, like, did you feel that? Was that just ignored? No, I was a kid. So, so you, you didn't, yeah. I mean, you didn't even know. You just know, oh, my parents went and voted or didn't vote or whatever it was, you know. And uh, as I grew up and started to get interested in this whole thing, you know, um, and try to understand what was going on. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, my understanding was simple. I mean, I mean, you take Lesotho for example, or you take Swaziland. You can go look it up and Google it and that, and and you'll find it that they have their own king, they have their own structure. So in their areas, they had their own government where they alone had power. Um, you know, and then in the white areas, if you want to call it that, and it's not just white areas. It's I mean, there's a lot of different races actually mixed in these areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the, the, you know, that was your people, your government, and. So so those were the guys who voted. So, you know, as, as a kid, I never really questioned that. And I mean, if I talk to my parents and whatever, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It would be interesting to hear their views. Um, but like I said, F.W. de Klerk at the end asked the white people and said, do you want us to change the system? More than 75% of the people in a referendum gave him the go-ahead to do that. Because people, people realized things it, was, to be fair. it was wrong. Yeah. Right? And I think I think from the beginning, you know, um, you know, you know, people have always wanted a system that was fair. Um and and um, yeah, so uh, I guess yeah, that's it. Okay, that, that it's interesting. So as you you basically come of age, then you see these conflicts, right? You know that the world is talking about your country and what's going on there, and you're probably seeing news headlines that are different than your experience, sure. which we all experience that, right? Um, you then. Were you supposed to go? Did everyone go become a soldier? Did you choose that? How did that look? So the choice was you either join the military because it it was a conscription program. Okay. Because of the threat South Africa was under from this communist um, uh, agenda all the way from North Africa that was filtering down. Um, And so uh, all the young guys went to the military. However, there's people for religious reasons who who became exempt, but then they would do a a four-year community service. Okay. So they'd have some form of community service. So you had a choice. Your choice was either go to the military or community service. And it wasn't easy. I mean, I, I literally, we had two guys take their own lives in our, in our part, as part of our military unit, you know, who just couldn't handle this being away from home. I mean, it's all hard for us to leave home. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, we walked in the one day into our dormitory and the guy hung himself on a rope, you know, wow. um, just because he, he couldn't handle being away from home and, and doing this. But, you know, the funny thing is, is that it, it, it did a lot of good having a conscription, a program of conscription because you go into the army with long hair and 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 you know you'd have all your earrings and you'd have all your you know life was cool akuna matata type of attitude and then in the military you learn discipline and you learned to make your bed first victory of the day is get up and make your bed you know and and, and you learn to take responsibility for yourself and for how you looked and for what you did and there was a discipline that was good for boys you know and i find when that is missing you know i mean you think about it any boy has a question um, and the question is, do I have what it takes? You know, life is hard. Do I have what it takes to be a man, to 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 uh, to raise a family, to be good to 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 a woman, and to uh, treat others with respect, and and to get ahead in life? Do I have what it takes? And the military was a great way of answering that question because of what you learned. You came out with a relative amount of peace. You know, if you'd lived by your by, by by a moral code and you hadn't crossed the line and done things, and there were people who did that, and when you did that, you could never adapt to society. But as long as you lived by a code and you and you and you did things right, you know, you came back and you were able to get out there and be an asset to your community and to go work and to and to treat others right because you knew what you were. You know, you didn't have to prove it. And masculinity was a good thing. It was a great thing. Whereas today, there's this great war on masculinity. You know, yeah. there's a war on femininity. They want us all to be the same somewhere in the middle. You know, and um, you know, in 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 our day, which was I guess the old days. I mean, you, you, men were men and women were women. That was that was how we lived. Yeah. So how long were you in the military? Uh, a couple of years. Um, and then I went afterwards, came out. And that was the interesting thing is you go out to war and then you come out and then I served a mission for my church. Um, so you come from from fighting to coming out and, and loving people. And it is an incredibly interesting contrast to to, to, sure. to, to have those two experiences back to back, you know, um, kind of 
makes com com competes the circle. You know, you can stand up and defend yourself and others as need be, but you also learn to care about others. You know, so wow. it's a good mix. That, that's really cool way to look at it. You, is, I mean, obviously, as we just talked about, you saw some really hard things, and you were at war. What? How did that change you? Um, there was a point where I realized I was becoming hard because if you're not hard, you don't survive. Um, and um, I remember the one day a friend, I mean, I, I got malaria up there and I was sick as a dog and I lost, uh, I mean, I don't know in pounds what it would be, but uh, about 25 kilograms. So I was all scrawny and skinny and I was used to being fit and healthy and stuff. And, yeah. and uh, I remember a friend sat on my bed and I remember getting angry with him and realized, wait a minute, something's changing, you know. And, and I realized that in war, when you see real war, there's a, you've, you've got to get control of your emotions, you know. And you're either going to become afraid or you're going to become angry. And what I learned was that there was a balance. And uh, the balance was that you couldn't be afraid. You, you had to find this anger, but you had to learn to control it. It was like a controlled aggression that, 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 that you needed to do what you were doing, you know. And so I found the guys who let go of that and just became angry and aggressive um, are the people who till today won't settle into society. And then those who lived in fear couldn't do the job, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it changes you and then you've got to decide what to do with that change. There's a there's a hardness that comes and you've got to decide, can you take control of that and use it in the right way or does it take control of you and you do the, all the wrong things, you know? Hmm. So, so it kind of affected Balance. me in that way. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, when, when, when I came out, I didn't have the need to... You know, guys uh, have a road rage incident and they want to fight someone. You you kind of lose that need because you because you've you've been there, done that, and you don't want to do it anymore. You know, mm. you you've realized that there's a better way than fighting somebody. You know, so yeah, it it it, it definitely has good. And I think war brings out the best and the worst in people. Um, and and if you choose to, it can really bring out the best in you. I think the way of the warrior is a great way. It's a way of service. I mean, the old samurai, the word samurai meant to serve. The old word knight comes from an Anglo-Saxon word meaning knacht, dienstknacht, which is to be a servant, you know. Mm. The old warrior empowered himself so he could serve people. And for me, that was the great opportunity of, of, of being a special ops soldier was that you could empower yourself and you could use that power to hurt or to serve. And good people will choose to give and bad people will choose to take. You know? yeah. So for me, it was an invaluable part of my life. That's awesome. And just for clarity, like, who were you fighting? What war would you call this? Where was so, it? So, so, so it was the African Bush War, okay. um, which was fought on the borders of South Africa and what is today called Namibia um, and Angola. Um, Angola had been infiltrated by the communists, um, by the Russians, by, by the um, Cubans, um, Chinese, etc. And then these guys had, uh, through um, their... their program of terror um, recruited a lot of the black tribes in that area and then used them as cannon fodder basically um, and as part of their armies to be able to move south and to infiltrate the South African borders and, and then commit their acts of terrorism and whatever. So so, so we were fighting essentially a, a communist threat um, and as I mentioned in my earlier passionate uh, <laughs> kind of thing um, we captured Russian soldiers who were generals, people who were behind the whole thing we in fact captured a lot of uh, equipment which we then um, as allies of the US passed on to uh, your president at that point Ronald Reagan um, and Reagan um, credited in fact the South African soldiers um, with that fall that took place in Russia in the, at the end of the Cold War um, because the Russians were making a lot of money selling all these this equipment this military equipment mm. um, to their allies and when they knew the Americans had that equipment um, uh, Russia didn't make anywhere near the same sales anymore because people didn't want the equipment, you know. Um, and so I think our soldiers played a great role in capturing that equipment and passing on to the Americans and and uh, and, and and their allies and and therefore played a big role in the ending of the Cold War. Okay. Did you have any desire to stay in the military or? Um, I did. Um, you know, I uh, for somebody to sleep safe in bed, somebody's got to get out and and make sure that that happens. You know, and I mean, you guys have a saying here in your country that. Freedom isn't free, and it isn't free. 
it's good. It, it, it costs blood to, you know. So, so for some to 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 sleep peacefully, others have to be on the on the front lines. And it has always been like that, and it will always be like that, you know. So, yeah, I was I was tempted too, but then I went and served the mission for my church, and then I got married, and you know, and <laughs> being a professional soldier and having a family, I don't know that that is always a fair on them. And of course, there are people who do it, and I really honor and take my hat off to them. And and um, and I mean, if the call came, I I will be there, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I was I was I definitely considered it. Yes. Okay, so tell me about then, and I actually don't know the answers to this. I know what you do now. I know you're in the business of empowerment and self-defense, and I know yes. that. So, like, how did that all begin? So, growing up in a fear-based society, you've got one or two choices. You become a victim or you empower yourself. It's as simple as that. So... Um, um, I saw some some horrible stuff as a kid. A friend of mine got killed. Um, I saw it. I had nightmares about it, you know, um, for a long time. And I felt so weak and felt so disempowered. And I just felt like this scared little kid, you know, much of my, my in my early years, you know. And I remember at school, you know, you know, when you're afraid, you've got two choices. You either go into your shell or you become a loudmouth. And I became a bit of a loudmouth and I got beaten up at school and stuff. And eventually a friend of mine said, man, Coop, you've been beaten up so many times. Why don't you come join the karate class with me, you know? Yeah. So I went to karate and I got beaten up more than ever. But but I had an amazing instructor, you know? And I mean, I remember joining the class and, and, and he said to me, why are you here? And I said to him, I want to learn how to fight. And he said to me, oh, so you want to learn how to hurt people? And then he says to me, he kind of paused a little and he said to me, I thought you wanted to be great. And that was kind of profound for me, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then he said to me, well, um, I'm going to teach you how to help people so that in case you're stupid enough to hurt them one day that you can at least fix what you do, you know. And so my whole time in the dojo was taught by a master, an absolute master who understood what he called the life-giving sword, you know, um, and and so anyway, I I, I I studied the philosophies of the ancient warrior cultures, and I then became, you know, joined the Marines and joined a special unit in the Marines, and, and then I did Aikido, and I did a bunch of things, and I just, you know, for me, I'm not an aggressive person, you know, I, I, I walk away from a fight quicker than I'll get involved in one, you know. Um, and 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 doing all this training did something for me. It 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 gave me something that is very hard to explain. And and perhaps the best way to do it is that is that I learned what I had. I learned what I was. Um, and um, you know, um, it 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 just enabled me to live in peace with other people. You know. Um, and so yeah, so so I I then went ahead and made it my business and decided to to try to find a way to empower others. And empowerment really is an emotional thing. It's about an emotional structure that can face adversity, face challenge, face difficulty, face negativity, face competition, um, and not be intimidated by it and not uh, be afraid of it. You know. And so anyway, to to answer the question, I mean, I knew I had to either be empowered or live as a victim. And so I decided to to uh, strengthen myself and to gain the skill set and the mindset I needed so that I didn't have to live in fear. Yeah. And then when I found that, I thought, let me let me give this to others because it, it is a great way to live. We can all live in tremendous challenge and still live at peace and still survive and thrive, even though we're in a hostile world. Yeah. It's funny. I'll be totally honest with you. As I'm hearing you say all of this, I am feeling like a serious wuss because, I mean, and I don't know if it's my fault. I think it's just the culture in general. Of, I've never been in a fist fight. I've never punched someone. I am twenty, almost 29 years yes, old. I've never done that, right? <laughs> I I'm not afraid of confrontation, but I've always done it with my words, right? Yes. I'm very good at de-escalating a situation, but I like that thought of you just saying, you know, conscription was a positive thing for you because every man has to decide like, do they have what it takes or not? And I kind of did a little introspection as you said that like, I, I don't know if I've ever answered that question in that way. What would you say to someone like me? And I'm guessing a lot of uh, millennials listening that are same. similar to yep. me that feel the same. So what happens is I'm look at the culture now. So here's my teenage boy. Um, he comes back from school. He's finished the dishes. He's done his chores in the garden. And hey, you've got some time to relax. Now he's got two choices. 
He can go and do something physical. He can go to the karate club. Or he can push some weights. He can hit a bag. He can do whatever. Um, or he can play his uh, play some games. So he gets in front of the TV and he plays video games. And he's the hero. He kills and shoots people and goes crazy. And I know video. I mean, gaming has become such a big part of the culture today. I heard a thing the other day that said, by the time we are thirty. Or, or by the time most kids are 30, they've played, um, the, the amount of hours they've spent, they could have done two master's degrees or something like that. So, wow, so it's, that. A, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, thing. Um, and I think that the, we, we kind of live our lives and answer our question, do I have what it takes virtually? We play the game, we watch the movies, and we're in this virtual reality, and that's where we are empowered, but that's not the real world. And, 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 and I want those hearing what I'm saying, not to get me wrong, in a in a situation where you've got to um, fight with someone, you know, so you're in the karate club or you're doing a self-defense course or whatever it is, you're going to face an assailant. What I realized what was the most valuable thing was that you cannot face that assailant no matter what your skill set. I mean, I train people, I give them great skills, I put on 40 pounds of body armor and then I physically attack them and everybody falls apart. You know, because it's not you just You can watch about, these videos on YouTube, oh, by yes. the way. They're hilarious. I'll yes. put the links in the episode. That'll be great. And so people people will fall apart and then you go, well, what happened? You know, in, in, in the dry run, you were perfect. And then, and then what happens is you begin to realize that there's a certain frame of mind that is required to deal with not only a hostile person, but a hostile situation. And when you can acquire that mindset... You can face anything that's tough and difficult. You know, it's a it's a fearless mindset. It's a um, it's a it's a, it's, a, it's kind of a proactive emotional structure versus being a defensive or reactive uh, um, frame of mind. You know, and and so 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 you know when I run my classes, I train people, give them the skill set, give them the tools. I then attack them; they fall apart, and then I help them to understand um, that that proactive mind, the mind that says. I am not helpless. I am not ruled by my fate. Um, I can be the master of my fate. I can make things happen. Um, I'm not at the mercy of someone else. And when they have that feeling right at their core, they can take control of that that bully, that bad guy who's trying to intimidate or assault them. And then what happens with that mindset, they, it, 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 it enables them to use that skill set they've been given. And literally, I get knocked out within two to three seconds by, by any And I'm talking kids, dainty, small women. I've seen your wife do it. Yeah, my, my <laughs> wife has knocked me lights out where I see stars and you, I've got to take off my helmet and kind of drink some water and realize who I am and where I am again, you know. And so, of course, you can imagine in my home, I do all the dishes. I cook, I clean, because if I don't, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. She's she's amazing, and and so um, the the whole lesson behind it all is is that mindset that can face negativity, that can face competition, that can face challenge. You know, there's competition when you're at school, in your sport, in your in your grades, um, with the girls and the guys. You know, and and then in business. I mean, this is a competitive world, and I find people don't have the heart for it. And so, if you can have a mindset that deals with a hostile threat, you can have the the mindset you need to deal with any challenging situation, not feel intimidated, not feel helpless, and essentially, you will not be ruled by your fate. You will not be the slave in your story. You can be the master of your fate. But you have to first be the captain of your soul. You have to be in control of your thoughts, your mind, your emotions, in order to be able to take control of your circumstances and survive and thrive and make of your life what you want to. And that, for me, is the great value of this kind of training, um, empowerment training, um, protection training, is if it's done right, you walk out of there with a mindset that says, I can take care of myself. I can handle difficult things. That's what it's about. You've sold me. We're going to talk in a minute. I want to do this personally because I've had this moment like, yeah, I think that sounds really cool. But I love this pattern that you walk them through. And it just hit me like you have to have your ass kicked before you can kick some ass. Sure. Am I right? Yes, sir. And I'm thinking about I'm like, I don't know if I've ever had my ass kicked. Really? Yeah. I remember when I started horse riding. Um, my daughters could ride and they said to me, Dad, we read a thing where you can only ride when you've fallen seven times. And I climbed on that horse and my goal was not to ride the horse. My goal was to fall seven times as quickly as I could. And I had some great falls and none of them were slow motion. They were all high speed falls. I came off into a tree. I, I, I had some crazy falls. But when you fall on the horse and survived, you go, hey, now I can ride the horse because I'm not scared of him. 
you know and 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 so yes i think you know aikido when i started aikido this japanese instructor said to me okay i'm going to teach you aikido now and the first thing he taught me how to do was how to fall he would throw me through the air and teach me how to land safely you know and i kept saying to him look sir i don't want to fall i want the other guy to fall you know and he says to me you can't learn you know how to how to do this until you've learned how to hit the ground and then get up and wipe off and carry on you know so great great principle yeah wow so you did this in South Africa yes. and it was really based out of necessity in a lot of ways and yes. that's why you were so passionate about it so how did that begin how did you train there and I mean I imagine this is something from what you just explained that was very very helpful for people yes yeah so so I guess you know first I wanted I wanted it for myself and then and then I I uh, started doing Aikido and I, and, I, and I came across a guy in fact three guys here in the States um, who were teaching what they called real fighting you know they were they were wearing padded suits and attacking you and and, and, and that was attractive to me so I came over and I learned from an old Vietnam war vet from a guy who was a bodyguard for old Hollywood stars and from another guy who um, he was a bouncer um, in all these pubs in New Mexico rough places and he's a small guy and but they were the nicest guys on the planet you know you you, you think to meet these guys and they're going to be these crazy old war warrior hate people knife in their hand type of guys <laughs> they were some of the nicest people I ever met I mean I, I, I sat talking to them and, and, and they would cry and I would be emotional and it was we just had great real conversations and anyway so I came and I studied from them and then I, I took this back home and I just saw too many terrified people and too many victims so, I mean back home it's not a question of have you been attacked it's a question of uh, uh, sorry it's, yeah, yeah, so it's not a question of will you it's a question of when will you be yeah. you know so everybody there faces it and everybody's scared and I just thought if I can empower them I mean the real threat is not the bad guy with a knife that's never the threat the threat is fatalism, not fate. It's your belief that that person rules your life. Mm. And the problem with that belief is it goes to bed with you, it baths with you, it works with you, it studies with you, it lives with you. And so I wanted to help them beat that villain. That's not a dragon. A dragon is a physical thing. It's a bad guy. This is a demon. It lives in your head. And if you can overcome this belief that fear rules your life, or that, or that, or that someone else is 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 in control of you, or or, or, or relentless forces outside of your life are, are, are what decide how your life turns out. If you can overcome that belief, you can live in peace and happiness. And then, when and if it happens to you, you'll be empowered to deal with it. But you don't spend the rest of your life living in fear and with self doubt. You know, which is what I found our people were living with, and I wanted to change that. And so I put people through our programs. And the, and the most encouraging thing was to watch them go into, I mean, to get a phone call and say, you won't believe what happened to me. I mean, we had a girl, she was trained, she climbed out of a car, she had a flat, and she got attacked on the side of the road by two guys with knives. Wow. She put the one guy in hospital, she chased the other guy away, she put the knife away from him, she, had a, she, had, she was stabbed in her stomach, she was cut on her arm, but nothing deep enough that it really was, you know, kind of fatal or bad for her, you know, in, in essence. But she overcame two guys. I put her on the radio, I had her do interviews and and really to see the change in her life and she said to me you know she said I just I feel like I can now live in this conflict and live in this difficulty and be a nice person and care about people because I'm not so afraid I mean if you if you're fearful you can't love bottom line perfect love casts out fear you know and when you overcome your fear you find that you're able to love and you cannot love when you're fearful. It's like light and dark, the two are opposites. And so my, my, my work back home was to really help people to, to get rid of the dark, yeah. to switch on the light, to learn how to care about others because they weren't so afraid. And that is my work here in the States. So I want to bring this message here and empower people, give them that mindset so that they're not afraid of themselves and don't doubt their lives, but that they are able to actually care and serve and add value rather than take from someone else yeah well that's so cool because on the on this show i talk so much about how fear is the primary motivator that is used against us to try and impel us to action yes. and i always say like fear doesn't motivate you to do something it paralyzes you yes. and yet like fear is the reason that it, rather than hey here's why you should vote for me for example it's if you vote for the other guy, the other guy wins, here's what's going to happen. You right. need to be afraid of how awful that well, situation is, it. so vote for me. Yes, sir. And I hate whenever that is used as a motivation, and I think the key is recognizing that, right? Being able to say, well, no, this is 
this is fear. This is the goal of what I'm being told or what I'm being taught right now. But then more important is once you recognize that, what do you do with that, right? Yep. I mean, remember that uh, there was a speaker on the road with us. He used to use that old saying where he said, fear is the father. No, 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 no. Uh, sorry. That's in fact another good one. Old samurai say, he said, fear is the father of all demons. Mm-hmm. That was from a samurai who faced life and death. It was a way of life for them. Fear is the father of all demons. But the guy on the road here had a statement where he said, um, fear is the dark room where all negatives are developed. Now, for most of the millennials listening here, <laughs> you won't know what that means because, I mean, you guys pick up a camera and you take a picture and there it is not a camera it's our phone oh, it's your phone there we go now nowadays you bought this fancy little camera and it had a film in it and then you had to take your pictures take the film out and develop it in a dark room so so that kind of made sense to us that fear is the dark room where negatives are developed and and i'll tell you the more i've thought through this and, and with uh, 25 30 years of empowering people i've come to realize that fear is the source of every vice it is the source of hatred it is the source of um, anger um, it is the source of self-doubt. Um, it is it is what destroys marriages. It is what makes us fail at business. It's what it's, it's it's what wrecks us on the sport field. You know, it's all about how do you overcome fear, um, and and fear and power are, are, are absolute opposites. You know, and you know people think power is a bad thing. Every one of us want power. We live in a in a in a hostile world, and we want to know we have what it takes to survive and thrive. We want to be empowered, and the person who's empowered can live a fearless life and can be a valuable asset. You know, so all of us really want that, and 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 it should be our quest to overcome our sense of fear. So you know, we run. For example, uh, you were talking about doing some training or doing yeah. Tell us about it. How can we find you? Yeah. So 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 what we do is uh, you can go onto the website. It's Ronin, which is R O N I N RoninEmpowerment.com. Um, we also have another website, <clears throat> ronanprotection.net, which is kind of more the safety training, uh, the protection training. But ronanempowerment.com, um, uh, if you go on there, you can download a free sample of our book. The book is called Winning the Mental Game, Making Things Happen. You can't make anything happen if you can't win the mental game. Um, and people get told, hey, your attitude's bad, fix it, but how? And we've got some crazy insights on how to do that that were learned in the face of life and death. So, you know, you can learn how to win that game and... Uh, you can download it on online. You can also buy a copy of the book. We've got it on sale right now. Um, or you can join us for a day. Now, if you join us for a day, we're going to tell you you will be frightened. Um, we're going to, you're going to have to disarm a, 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 a um, you know, an armed mugger. You're going to have to take away a knife or a gun, a real knife and a real gun from somebody. You're going to have to learn how to fight a padded assailant. You're going to have to learn how to handle a bully, someone who's verbally assaulting you. Yeah. You're going to have, uh, break a, a couple of um, um, inches thick of concrete roof tile that we put on top of each other. You're going to walk on fire. We're going to make a huge bonfire at the end. Um, it's an ancient warrior's rite of passage. We lay out about 15 feet of red coals. They can see it on the site also. Um, and we're going to have you in the evening walk across that. But the essence is we're going to get you to face um, um, a, a, a threat. Fear. And, and, and therefore face fear mm. um, and learn how the proactive offensive mindset overcomes fear. That's really what you're going to go through. And if I can just wrap it up maybe with this kind of a thought, um, there's a story told about a farmer who found an egg in his field. And he, he's curious, he takes the egg home and puts it under the mother hen and it hatches. And as it grows up, he realizes that this is actually an eagle that he'd found. But the eagle doesn't know he's an eagle because he, he lives in a chicken coop with chickens. Mm-hmm. One day, uh, um, a man arrives, a friend of the farmer, and he sees this eagle in the chicken coop. So he runs inside, says to the farmer, hey, you've got an eagle among the chickens. You better come see. And the farmer says, don't worry. He says, that eagle um, thinks he's a chicken. You know, he, his mother was a chicken. He, um, he's surrounded by chickens. He, he lives in a chicken coop. He eats chicken food, and he spends his days scratching in the dirt. So the man says to the farmer, look, can I, can I take this uh, eagle and try and teach him what he is? Because, I mean, that's an injustice to have such a majestic creature in nature live like this and scratch in the dirt. Farmer says, be my guest. So the man goes into the uh, cage, into the coop, takes the eagle out and strokes him lovingly in this free, cool air and says to him, eagle, you're an eagle, not a chicken. Now fly. And he throws him up in the sky. Anyway, the eagle just plummets straight back down, hits the deck, and carries on scratching in the dirt. 
So the man gets a, um, a ladder from the farmer, puts it up against the barn, climbs the barn, stands on the pinnacle of the roof, strokes the eagle lovingly and says, Eagle, you're an eagle, not a chicken. Now fly. Throws him off the edge of the, of the roof. So anyway, the eagle just plummets down, hits the deck, squawks indignantly, carries on scratching in the dirt. Man takes that eagle, puts him in his truck, drives him up into the mountain, and he finds a cliff. He stands with the eagle at the edge of a cliff and he says to him, Eagle, you're an eagle, not a chicken. Now you fly or you die. He throws him off the cliff. So as he starts falling, of course, the eagle's wings spread and the thermals catch his feathers. And before he knows it, this eagle is kind of gliding off into the sunset, a majestic, noble creature. And why I tell the story is because I'm the guy that visited the farmer. I look inside the cage and I see eagles. Your national bird in the United States is an eagle. In France, it's a chicken. <laughs> I'd rather live here. And if there's any French people listening, hey, I love the French. They play great rugby. But um, uh, I, I see all these eagles. And, 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 and you know what the worst thing is? They don't need a cage. Back in my country, we have a cage. You're bound. You can't do this and this and this if you're this color. And you can't do that if you're that color. And there's all this crazy stuff going on. You're, you're, you're bound in a cage. Yeah, I see eagles free walking around. But the problem is they think they're chickens. They have this chicken mindset. And they spend, they're surrounded by chickens and they spend the day scratching in the dirt. And what I do in my business is I take eagles that think they're chickens and I throw them in the air and I throw them off barn roofs and I throw them off cliffs. We attack them in padded suits. We make them walk on fire. We give them tiles to break, do all kinds of crazy things. But I want you to learn that you're an eagle, that there is something in you um, that you didn't know that you had. And when you find that, you become majestic. You become noble. You become valuable. You become the American dream. You become what your you become what your founding fathers intended you to be, and to be something that can take care of itself, that is, uh, um, you know, able to go make a life for itself, that's looked up to by others, rather than just spending your life scratching in the dirt. Because I tell you, there are a lot of people listening that feel like they spend their lives scratching in the dirt. Yeah. We see them and we know that there is a way to fix that. And it all has to do with emotional structure, mindset. How do you fix that? That's the game. Yeah. Oh, man, I love this. I, I have enjoyed this so much today. And I think for you as uh, not an American, right, to look at America and say, like, look what you have. Look what you have to be grateful for. Look what you can do. And we as Americans right now, I feel are living under our potential, yes, 100%. I think that's why I started this podcast in the first place, because I was tired of running the same pattern over and over, us having these conversations that are fear-based, that we focus on the problems, that we don't talk about how great this country really can be, but it, our country's gonna be awful if we're all a bunch of chickens, that's right? Right. The only way is to truly embrace that. And uh, you know, last summer I went up to uh, the Tetons and uh, I mean, beautiful place, love that. That area but I in one day it must have been mating season or something we saw in one day nine bald eagles wow. and we went and we went and rafted down uh, just the Snake River and it, my friends were making fun of me because I was so excited about it I'd actually just started the podcast and it was like this sounds dorky it was like a spiritual experience for me almost to watch these animals that are Incredible! One, they're just huge. To use the phrase majestic, you're right on. And to watch them fly over our heads down the river, and a lot of them were in pairs because they were mating. It was so cool. And it was the first time I'd really seen in nature, like that is our national bird. Yep. That is what we use to represent what this American experiment is all about. And how are we doing? It's a great question, question to ask. You know, John Wayne, <clears throat> I've really come to like old John Wayne. Interesting guy, and I, he, he, you know, he made a statement. Um, and, and you, know, he, uh, um, he, you know, he talks about, for example, going to church, and he says, where are the days where young boys went to church and never asked why, you know? But anyway, he makes a comment about why America's great. And, um, and, and this is his take on it. He says, it's people. And then he says, her people who'd done their own thing with blood, sweat, and tears, and a prayer. 
And and if you think about it, this is why I brought my family here. You people don't always get what you have. I mean, this when when you're free, the, the, blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, God doesn't give it to you. You've got to get out there and do something, because otherwise, how will you become anything? You know, you got to go work it out. You got to decide what you want, and you got to go blood, sweat, and tears. And I tell you, there is no road to success without blood, sweat, and tears. There's something good about that. But then he adds that other part. He goes and a prayer. You know, uh, we don't. You know, chickens need the farmer. They need someone to protect and to feed and to and to house them. But their end is to end up on the farmer's dinner plate, you know. And that's the problem. If we end up with a country of chickens, that's what's going to happen to us. We, we want someone else to rule us, someone else to take control of us. Um, and, and, and our end is not a good end, you know. Whereas the eagle is different, you know. He, he, he will be responsible for himself, even if it costs him his life. Blood, sweat and tears and a prayer, that's what it takes. And 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 I, and I tell you, Connor, I love your country, and I want everyone to know that that I I mean I'm not a citizen, but we we, we hope to be within the next four years citizens. But I'm a patriot to your country, and I love it. I love what it stands for, and I will uh, stand in the front lines and defend that, <laughs> defend this country. And uh, well, you just you said something. something like you changed it. You just said uh, your country a minute ago. But when you were talking there, you said our country yes, and us it is <laughs> and to me what i think is so cool is that's america too right like we are that concept of being a melting pot being american just means you are here and that's you right. are living it that's and right. so you don't sound like an american <laughs> but guess what you are because yes. it's it's that it's the people and it's what's in here and the fact that you are coming to our country and showing us where we're falling short and what we can do to, I mean, to be better and to continue to make sure that America stays great. It's kind of cool that it takes maybe an outsider to do that. But guess what? That outsider very quickly, you're one of us. So, yes, so we, have to remove, we have to remove the hyphen, you know. There's this, I see so much of this African-American and Mexican-American and Italian hyphen American. Mm-hmm. You know we're we're American. We've we you know if if, if I want to be African American uh, with a hyphen, then I must go to Africa. If I want to be Italian American, I must go to Italy. If, you know, at the end of the day, and this is the problem, and this is what we have to be aware of: is we don't have to be divided. We are here as a melting pot of people who love freedom. You know, and 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 who want to do things as that statement said their own way. You know, we want to do it our own way with blood, sweat, and tears, and a prayer, and, and that's what makes this country great. And 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 uh, my hope and prayer is that we can maintain that. You know, do things your own way, believe in yourself, and make it happen. Gordon, after an hour or two with you, I'm ready to go run through a wall. <laughs> what, what can we go break? What can we go do? Yeah, I, I'd probably get my ass kicked real quick. Thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it so much. It's so funny. We didn't even get to talk through like how these typically go. And so I didn't tell you how I end every episode. Yes, sir. I end every episode with song. Oh, well, Clowns some... to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Great Thanks, stuff. Gordon Cooper. Thank you, sir. Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm.